This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron, and they have a special offer for all felon listeners in the US. With Blue Apron, you can make incredible home-cooked meals with minimal time, effort, and expense. Some of the meals available in November include pan-seared chicken with roasted fall vegetables and butter caper sauce, spicy lotus root, and purple carrot stir-fry with sweet potato noodles, lemongrass roasted pork with romanesco cauliflower and coconut rice. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. When you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash felon. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash felon. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. A quick question for the guys out there. What underwear are you wearing right now? Are you wearing the best you could be? Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. The Mack Weldon story began with frustration. The frustration with the experience of shopping for the basics. The mind-numbing assortment of items to dig through, the products that seemed okay in the store but didn't quite feel right once back at home, and settling on a range only to find it unavailable in a year's time. From this frustration came a better option. Superior, well-made basics for men with a hassle-free shopping experience. Smart designs made from premium fabrics and delivery direct to your door. Mack Weldon underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies and sweatpants will be the most comfortable you will ever wear. Mack Weldon even have you covered in the hygiene department, producing a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, keeping you smelling better for longer. Your comfort is their priority, and so to make sure you are, Mack Weldon has the try-on guarantee. They know that underwear is a personal thing, and that you won't know if it's the right fit for you until you try it on. So, give Mack Weldon a go, and if it's not quite right, They'll send you a different size, style, or issue a refund. No questions or returns needed. For listeners in the US, to take advantage of a special offer, go to MacWeldon.com. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and get 20% off using the promo code FELON. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code FELON. MacWeldon, smart underwear for smart guys. Welcome to Felon, True Crime Podcast, Episode 12, Kapunda and Corn. In a first for Felon, two stories will be covered throughout this episode. Two unrelated crimes committed in two different towns, but both extremely brutal in nature and both driven by a disturbing obsession. As with previous stories, this episode will contain graphic descriptions of violence, so again, Listen to discretion is advised. Part 1. Kapunda. Monday, the 8th of November, 2010. A dark figure emerges from the front door, casting a wiry shadow as it moves, through the gate and quickly into the street. A quiet escape. 
The silence of the night is a stark contrast to the horror his victims have just endured at his hand. He makes little noise as he moves. Blood-drenched socks cover his feet and muffle his footsteps. Moments earlier, he had eased himself slowly through a bathroom window, stepping down into a bath and making his way through the quiet home. Whether alerted by his entry or his movement within, an occupant stirred to find a dark silhouette slinking along the corridor. A light switched on. He was no longer disguised by a blanket of darkness, and they stood eye to eye. Retreating quickly to the kitchen, the intruder collected an object from the bench and turned to confront the approaching occupant. He now makes his way along the street. Again, he is draped in darkness and concealed. He walks into the night, to a waiting car. He drives. The scene behind him shrinks in the rear view, as their screams echo and swirl in his head. A lustful rage had coursed through his veins. In the wake of his attack, three lay lifeless, drenched in their own blood, slaughtered at the hands of a slender shadow. They had fought for their life. They struggled, but the attacks were quick and ferocious. The sun of a new day would soon stream through the windows of the family home. Inside, there would be a father, a mother, and their daughter, who would not see it. The small township of Kapunda sits about 80 kilometres or 50 miles north of Adelaide, the capital of South Australia. For those familiar with episode 2, it is about a 20-minute drive west of the notorious town of Truro. In 2010, the population of the town was just over 3,000 people, so a crime as brutal as this shook the tight-knit community and the news travelled fast. Prior to this event, Kapunda had gained the title of Australia's most haunted town after a documentary of the same name was filmed there in 2001. But the horror of this particular crime would haunt the locals far more than any ghost story ever could. Kapunda resident Andrew Rowe failed to attend an appointment for his carpet cleaning business. This was unlike Andrew, as he was known for being reliable and punctual. When further attempts to contact Andrew failed, his business partner made his way to the Rowe family home in an attempt to make sure he was okay. But his colleague would soon discover he was far from okay, and the authorities were contacted. Upon hearing the news from Andrew's colleague, local police officer, Senior Constable Justin Doherty attended the Rowe family home, unprepared for what he would see. Doherty arrived to an unlocked door and made his way into the home. The scene that unfolded as he stepped cautiously through the house was nothing short of horrific. The floor was covered wall to wall in blood. Among the crimson puddles lay three mutilated bodies. Due to the complex nature of the crime scene, police needed to establish some sort of idea whether it was a result of murder or potentially a murder-suicide. Without being able to make a definite ruling, a statement was given in a press conference that three people were dead and a complex crime scene needed to be assessed before more details could be released. It was just before midnight on the day of the discovery that the pathologist and crime scene investigators confirmed it was in fact a triple murder. With this news, the media swarmed, 
and concerned locals were on edge. So great was the fear of some that they left town. It seemed that a vicious murderer had struck randomly and a killer was still on the loose. Police have confirmed what Kapunda residents have feared. The three deaths discovered in the mid-north town yesterday were the result of homicide. Crews have been searching the town for a murder weapon believed to be a knife. Police haven't ruled out the possibility of more than one killer and say the search for evidence could last days. State Emergency Service worker volunteers comb surrounding areas for evidence, as did police. At the time of the attack, only two uniformed police were in the town and so droves of detectives and forensic examiners arrived to collect evidence from the unassuming Harriet Street home where three members of the Rowe family had been slain. The family home was thoroughly examined in the hope that the killer had left behind any lingering traces of his or her identity. As is the case with most modern day tragedies, news of the murders began to circulate social media. One particular Facebook user, who was visiting another state on vacation with his fiancée, heard along the digital grapevine that a familiar street in his hometown had been cordoned off by police. Christopher Rowe took to Facebook, venting his frustration that he had not been able to contact anyone in his family since hearing of Harriet Street being blocked off. He pleaded for someone in Kapunda to shed light on the situation. It would not be long that he would hear the tragic fate of his father Andrew, mother Rose, and 16-year-old sister Chantal. A seasoned police officer who attended the harrowing scene made the statement that even the goriest of horror movie scenes would pale in comparison to what he saw in the family home. Andrew was stabbed 29 times. Rose received 50 stab wounds, and Chantel had been stabbed at least 33 times. Police worked around the clock to settle the fears of locals. There was no one outside after dark, and people were reluctant to answer the knock at the door for fear there could be a killer lurking behind it. Crime prevention staff were sent to talk to people in the main street. Extra patrols were sent to the area, and a dedicated night shift team scoured the town in the hope to maintain a visible presence and in turn relieve some public concern. During the early stages of the investigation, a glimmer of hope came in the form of a vague but seemingly related Facebook status post. An individual with a connection to the Rowe family and who lived nearby posted a Facebook update alluding to the fact that he had done something terrible and didn't know how he could live with himself. Police hoping for a quick resolution pounced, all the while thinking that solving it this quickly seemed too good to be true. Unfortunately, it was. Police quickly determined that the message was in reference to an unrelated domestic matter and again focused their attention on finding new leads. Tuesday, the 9th of November, day two of the investigation. Police on the ground carried out door knocks, visited neighbours, coordinated more searches, gathered background information on family, and compiled a list of friends of the family to talk to. Special attention was given to looking at friends of Chantel. Based on the way her body was positioned and the state of her clothing, it was determined that more care was taken with her body than that of her parents, and so the focus was turned 
to looking at her friends first. Police discovered that Chantelle had hosted a party on the Saturday night prior. Uniformed officers tracked down and took statements from all of Chantelle's friends who had attended. During the first round of questioning, no one seemed to gain the attention of police. Wednesday the 10th of November, day three of the investigation. Brevet Sergeant Peter McKenzie, known as Jock, led a team of forensic investigators. The forensic examination process began with a visual survey of the scene. Mackenzie noted that on his way to the scene, he had assumed it would be a murder-suicide, but as soon as he went into the house, he formed the view very quickly that it was murder. He made the following statement, When I got inside the house, I thought, this is murder. It was the bloodiest scene I'd ever encountered in my 20 years. Blood was in every room, on every wall. The patterns of the wounds, the spray on the walls, you could tell those people were fighting for their life as someone was stabbing them. The team of four forensic investigators was reduced to two inside the house to make it easier to move throughout. The bodies were tape lifted, a process that utilizes an adhesive tape to lift any traces of transference from the offender to the victims. The scene was so much of a bloody mess, it took five days to individualize every blood splatter, measure, photograph, take samples and tag evidence. Linoleum was removed from the floor and taken back to the office to allow the investigators access to examine the walls without contaminating potential evidence. Thursday the 11th of November, day four of the investigation. A stroke of luck gave investigators a lead that would soon prove to be a break in the case. While spraying the doors with a chemical called Amido Black, a substance that reacts with proteins to expose fingerprints, some spray ran down the door and disclosed a previous non-visible print. The print was on the very edge of the door, just above the door handle. And while there was already a significant amount of prints that had been discovered around the house, this one was different. This one was discovered in a blood-type substance. The fingerprint was analysed, and the result came back as unknown. Unknown meant that it was not already on the police system. It wasn't a member of the Rowe family, or any of Chantel's friends, who had a reason to be in the home. On day six of the investigation, it was revealed that semen was found on Chantel's body, and it was determined that at some point during the attack, she was raped. This shocking revelation confirmed the hunch that police had that Chantel was the primary focus of the attack. The semen sample, like the fingerprint, came back as unknown. Police had a solid forensic makeup of the intruder, but no way to link it to anyone. Following the line of thought that Chantel was the target, the decision was made to review the statements of those close to her, her circle of friends. The number of initial statements taken by police early in the investigation was in the dozens. Out of all of Chantel's friends who had given statements, none had stood out to police. But upon a second review, Sergeant Keane, an experienced detective in the major crime unit, read something that didn't sit right with him. Based on a gut feeling, he followed it up. A statement provided by one of Chantel's male friends had repeated a number of times that Chantel wasn't his girlfriend and that he didn't have a girlfriend. He said this without being prompted. Sergeant Keane thought the phrase and the amount of times he repeated it seemed odd. Keane discussed this strange statement 
with an Inspector Gray, after some deliberation, they decided on a course of action. The individual in question was a Jason Downey. When Downey became the focus of the investigation, Inspector Gray contacted his boss to determine if he had been at work on the day of the murders. Downey's boss recalled that he had been, but he added that he had turned up late on that day. Even more curious was the fact that Downey had told his boss that he had injured his hand in a motorbike accident. A plan had already been made to collect DNA samples of all males who had been at Chantel's party on the Saturday night. Although Downey was absent from this party, his name was added to the list. The requests for DNA were voluntary, and all males on the list were happy to oblige, even Jason Downey. Sergeant Keane swabbed the participants for DNA, and Detective Brevet Sergeant Van der Stelt was responsible for fingerprinting. When Detective Van der Stelt took Downey's fingerprints, he noticed something that prompted him to inquire further. Downey had a number of cuts on his hand. He shrugged these wounds off as a result of a bike accident on the Friday night, but there was something strange about the cuts. They were deep wounds, not scratches, that would be consistent with stacking a bike. Downey was also questioned as to whether he'd ever been inside the Rowe family home. He said he hadn't, and on the occasions he had visited with Chantel, he'd only ever been outside. But a comparison of the bloody fingerprint found inside the home with Downey's would say otherwise. The print was a perfect match to Downey. With this knowledge, police chose to wait for the results of the DNA test before making a move. Late the next day, they got the answer they assumed they would. The DNA also matched. Not wanting to tip off Downey and potentially force his hand into making a rash decision when faced with the prospect of being arrested, police elected a subtle approach to bring him in. They had no idea of his state of mind or the potential danger he posed to the public if they went in, guns blazing. Their tactic would be one of allowing him to think he was required to attend a local police station as part of routine formalities that all participants of the DNA testing were required to be involved with. With this, they hoped that he would not be alerted to their interest in him as a suspect. A detective kinsman called Downey's work and asked that the message could be passed on to him. He asked if Downey could please stop by the Capunda police station and sign a statement, but unknown to him, on this particular day, Downey had not driven into work. Instead, he'd received a lift from his boss. When his boss was asked to pass on a message, he said, No worries. I brought him into work. I can bring him into the police station on my way home. Initially, detectives were not comfortable with this arrangement, but rather than spooking Downey, they decided to let it run its course. The police waited anxiously for Downey's arrival at the station. They had closed the station early, and they unlocked the door when he arrived. When he came through, police arrested him. Police footage shows Downey walking in and sitting down calmly, talking to police. During this time, police noted that he didn't react to their questions. He just calmly denied committing the offences. After a period of time, Downey asked that his mother be called. She was allowed to sit in on the interview. During this time, his mother pleaded with him to tell the truth. The police pressed Downey and explained to him they had found his semen on Chantel. Downey claimed that he had had consensual sex with Chantel a number of months ago. He said that he'd used a condom, but obviously it must have broke. With this statement, police could see he was grasping at straws, and they knew that they had their man. While police made arrangements to go public with the arrest, Downey was taken from Kapunda 
to Elizabeth Police Station. The police escorting Jason Downey noted he said very little and showed even less emotion. Jason Downey was a friend of Chantel's. A number of photos showed the pair posing together and they would often share text messages or chat online. Downey was also close friends with Chantel's boyfriend, Dylan. Following her death, Downey appeared to be grief-stricken. He attended a memorial at the back of the Rowe residence, placing a card and a teddy bear near their back gate. He had gathered with mutual friends, pretending to mourn with them, all the while knowing he was the cause of their grief. As well as the fingerprint and DNA sample, there was a significant amount of evidence against Downey found at the crime scene. Blood samples found in the house matched Downey's. Blood from the Rowe family was also located on Downey's car console, and he was in the possession of Chantel's USB stick and lanyard. Shoe prints found at the crime scene matched the pair of shoes that Downey could be seen wearing in a Facebook photo. With an airtight case against Downey, he had no choice but to plead guilty. A teenager is facing most of his adult life in jail after admitting to the slaughter of Kapunda's Rowe family. The guilty plea to three murders met with cries from the gallery of the packed Elizabeth courtroom. Based on the evidence at the scene, police put together a timeline of how the attacks occurred. Downey's shoe print was found in the bottom of the Rose bath with no blood on it. This led crime scene investigators to safely assume that Downey had broken into the house through the bathroom window. Just after 1am, a neighbour heard three pleas for help and then a thump like someone falling, followed by more screams and then silence. It is the view of Sergeant Keane that Downey, using a knife, disabled all three members of the Rowe family, came back and finished the attack. In the process, he stabbed Chantel. She crawled under the bed, already bleeding. He dragged her out and raped her. He then redressed her. All three were left to die from their wounds as Downey made his way out the front door, leaving a trail of bloody footprints. In the wake of such a violent attack, the question remains, what motivated Downey, a quiet 18-year-old, to carry out such a violent act against three innocent people? In discussions with a psychologist, he was questioned as to his motive, to which he replied, pretty much jealousy. I thought we had something going on. When I learned when she was with Dylan, I wasn't happy. I pretty much got angry. Like I said to you before, I had nothing against the parents. When questioned as to who he thought was responsible for the attack, he responded, easy question, it's me, I'm responsible. Obviously, if I hadn't been stupid that day and just calmed down and talked to her, none of this would have ever happened. It's all my fault. I'm definitely sorry for what I did, just because obviously I've hurt so many people and so many families through my actions. It definitely shouldn't have happened. I should have thought about it before I did it and thought about the consequences. Consequences that will forever weigh on the heart of Christopher Rowe, the only surviving member of the Rowe family. To honour his family's memory, Christopher Rowe had tributes tattooed on both arms. One reads, in loving memory of Chantel Marie Rowe, gone but not forgotten. On the other, in loving memory of Andrew Peter Rowe and Rosemary Joy Rowe, forever in my heart.
skinny 18-year-old when he carried out his depraved and vicious crime, handed one of the state's longest prison sentences, he'll be 53 before any chance of freedom. But I don't think he'll make it anyway, because in or out, he's a dead man walking. 16-year-old Chantelle and her parents, Rose and Andrew, were repeatedly stabbed in their Kapunda home in November 2010. Part 2. Corn. The 4th of December, 2012. He stops to catch his breath. The digging has made him weary. He glances up for a brief moment, but an outline of a figure before him spurs him on. Images of the past hours are replayed in his mind. A knife, an axe, then fire. The flames had illuminated his face as he flicked a match into the pile. The fire had risen in a surge, then settled lapping at the air and searing the flesh within. But the flame had soon died down, and the silent spectator knew it would not consume his crime as he had hoped. He tied the scorched remains to the rear of his vehicle and dragged it along the road. He stopped at a nearby cemetery, retrieved a shovel, and began to dig. As the shallow grave is formed, he snaps from the gruesome montage playing in his head. He drags the body to the hole and covers it in soil. Two years after the tragedy of the Rowe family in Kapunda, another small town in South Australia would gain the attention of the media. The body of a 22-year-old woman was discovered on the side of the road in the outback township of Corn. On the same day, a 16-year-old girl was listed as a missing person. Time would soon link this murder and disappearance. The news that police had found a body on the side of the road shook Vicky Smith to the core. Vicky's 16-year-old daughter, Rebecca, had been missing since 10.30 the previous night. Rebecca had arranged to meet 19-year-old Jose, a friend of hers. The time of Rebecca's curfew had come and gone, and Rebecca had failed to return home. Rebecca's mother, assuming she was running late, left the house key under the front doormat and went to bed. When Vicky woke the next morning, Rebecca's bed was still empty. After attempts at calling Rebecca failed, Vicky logged into her Facebook account from the home computer. The last message that she'd received was from Jose, and it read, Don't tell anyone I'm coming. Vicky notified the police of Rebecca's disappearance and started to call her friends to see if they'd seen her. It was in talking to one of her friends that she learned of a body that had been discovered by the side of the road. Her friend had been quick to add, It's not Beck. But a mother's intuition still told her something was very wrong. Vicky tracked down Jose's number, hoping that Rebecca was still with him. In talking to Jose, he revealed that he didn't end up meeting up with Rebecca. With no leads as to her whereabouts, Vicky and her family waited anxiously at home, hoping for the best, but fearing the worst. State Emergency Service volunteers scoured surrounding areas and bushland. Among those volunteers 
was Jose, who had joined the search party to look for his friend. Later that night, while police were visiting their home, one of the officers received a call, and with this, he broke the tragic news of Beck's whereabouts. Police had located her body in a shallow grave just outside the township of Corn. Police would also soon reveal that they had a suspect in custody. They had arrested one of the state emergency service volunteers while he was among the ranks of those searching for Rebecca. It was a Jose Omonte Extrada, the same young man that Rebecca had planned to meet with the night before. While in police custody, Jose would make a shocking confession to two murders. After contacting Rebecca through Facebook, Jose arranged to meet her at a local school in the town of Port Piri. Once he picked her up, the two began to argue. He pulled out a knife and he stabbed her 29 times in the head, face and arm. Still alive, but badly injured, he drove Rebecca from Port Piri to Corn. Upon arriving on the outskirts of Corn, Jose stopped the car to find some water and a blanket for Rebecca. Rebecca opened the passenger door and lunged from the vehicle, falling to the ground and spilling the contents of her handbag. Jose ran to Rebecca and attempted to lift her to her feet. Suddenly, the headlights of an oncoming vehicle illuminated the pair. The driver of the vehicle, seeing that Rebecca was in trouble, pulled up the car and approached Jose. The Good Samaritan was a 22-year-old local woman, Jessie Fullerton. Jessie recognized Jose, whom she had seen at the Transcontinental Hotel in Corn, where Jose was a regular. Seeing that something was seriously wrong with Rebecca, Jessie approached the pair and said, what the hell are you doing out here? Her questioning escalated when she saw the blood on the car, saying, why is there blood all over the fucking car? What the fuck have you done to her? It was at this point that Jose ran to the back of the truck, collecting an axe. Jesse was yelling to Jose that he needed to take Rebecca to the hospital. It was while Jesse was comforting Rebecca that Jose crept up behind her with the axe and brought it crashing down onto her head. And then I saw the, Jesse's car coming towards the, you know, through the road. Yes. And I panicked. She saw Beck's, you know, body in the car. And she stopped the car and she hopped out and said, you know, what the hell is going on here? That's when I struck her with the axe. In the words of Jose, she falls to the floor and makes a talking noise. And I see blood coming out really fast. She is still moving her arms and stuff. So I hit her again. I am really lucid and I keep on hitting her in the head and the face. So I keep hitting her with the axe. You could see the shock look on Beck's face. I just told her to shut up. Shh, shh. We had to get out of there. Beck starts crying because she saw what I had done. She is screaming at me to let her go. Jose pushes Rebecca back into the passenger seat of the car and they continue down the road. Jose recalls the fatal blows that he delivered to Rebecca. She's losing oxygen and bleeding really heavy. She starts spitting at me, telling me to fucking let her go. So that's when I grabbed the axe. I just got frustrated. I just lost it. I hit her three or four times in the head and I see all the blood. How did you kill Rebecca? With an axe. Was that the same axe that you used to kill? Yes. Following Rebecca's death, Jose dragged her body behind some bushes and covered it in a blanket. He put the axe next to the body, drove back to Jesse Fullerton's car, turned off the headlights and took the keys. The vehicle that Jose was using that evening belonged to the state emergency service where he was a volunteer. 
he drove it back to the state emergency service station and spent three hours cleaning the vehicle and himself. He took off his blood-soaked clothes and hid them in the station's control room. All the while, CCTV within the station captured his every move. Jose returned to Rebecca's body, doused it in petrol, and set her alight. When the flames died down, he found a rope, tied one end to Rebecca's feet, and tied the other around the tow bar, and started driving to a nearby cemetery, dragging Rebecca's body behind the car. He then dug a shallow grave and buried Rebecca. Jose returned the vehicle to the SES station and cleaned off the remaining traces of the night. He walked home and accessed Rebecca's phone, removing messages shared between the two. He then removed the phone's battery. Hours later, he would be part of a search party sent out to look for Rebecca. It would be while out on this search party that police would arrest him. Jose would then lead police on a grim tour of his crimes. It's just breaking out. So once again, I picked up the axe and straight, straight tied both of her feet around. So this was approximately around right here. In the lead up to the murders that night, Jose recalled that while they drove, they argued. Jose said, I found out at one point that she was up to things with different guys at the same time while lying to all the other ones. It was about trying to stop our friendship because she had begun holding out on me a lot. She wasn't very trusting of me. I knew she was lying to me about different guys and stuff. It really frustrated me because I felt she was using me. I was always there trying to please her in a way and give her what she wanted. She got really angry and I kind of, you know, lost it. And as I was driving, I started to feel my way to the back seat where my bag was. And that's when I pulled out the knife on her. It went for a couple of minutes and I got really frustrated with her. So I stabbed her right in the arm. I kept repeatedly stabbing her. She said, what are you doing? Let me go, don't do this to me. I just had anger towards her. The fact that she would just about the different guys and stuff, I felt like she was using me a lot and I could have lost it. The brutal double murder of two young women shocked the state and now Jose Ormond Extrada has admitted to the heinous crimes. The victim's families were in court calling the murderer a cowardly maggot. The pain they're feeling will never really end, but today some small relief for two families devastated by two brutal murders. I'm just glad he had the decency to own up to what he did to our girls. He was a bleak and cowardly, um, sadistic maggot and uh, the police did a terrific job in catching him. In the days after his crimes, Jose Omonte Extrada tried to hide his horrific secret by joining other SES volunteers searching for clues on the outskirts of Corn. The truth is the 20-year-old murdered Port Pirie schoolgirl Rebecca Wilde, whose body was found in a shallow grave in December. He also bashed to death 22-year-old Jacinta Lee Fullerton after she stumbled across the murder on her way home. She knew that bloke just uh, stabbing that little girl and she went out of her way and, uh, to help someone in uh, stress and, they, um, and she got killed for it. In a sad twist, Noel's wife died just this week. He says she never got over Jacinta's death and died of a broken heart. As Amonte Extrada said the word guilty, gasps came from the victim's families. His case will now move to the Supreme Court where submissions will be made on an appropriate non-parole period. For both families, no penalty will be enough. He's a maggot, and um, I, I don't know how to say it. In Port Augusta, Tom Hicks, nine years.